Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. Today, we're going to be taking a look at a discussion between Alex O'Connor, commonly known as Cosmic Skeptic, and Max Baker Heitch as they discuss uh, how reason impacts naturalism. Stick with us. But the, the basic thought here is um, that simply, you know, an, an arrangement of atoms mm. um, can no more be about the city in yeah. which we find ourselves than this table can be. But basically, we have, I think, the best in YouTube atheist apologists. And either throughout most of the thing, he doesn't understand the, the argument being made or he doesn't know what to do with it. Twice, Justin Brierley having to direct his attention back to it's this issue of intentionality, it's this issue of aboutness. The aboutness of thoughts, that we have thoughts that are about London, for instance. Uh, Max having to say, no, 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 it's this issue of aboutness. That's really the central issue. That doesn't really help us understand that those atoms are about modus ponens. And what it's kind of boiled down to in the end, I feel like, Alex, is, is a sort of that classic question of, of how does physical stuff produce consciousness or yeah. the aboutness of our thoughts. So I'm excited about this topic. It's not one that I've talked about too much on the show before. Typically when I talk about reason and how it impacts uh, worldview discussions and the existence of God, it, it has to do with uh, libertarian freedom. Uh, but in this case, we're going to be taking a look at uh, naturalism and how naturalism has difficulty accounting for certain things that have to do with our consciousness. And specifically for most of this discussion, and definitely where we're going to hone in on, is how it is that naturalism accounts for physical objects, namely our brains and the mechanisms within our brains, um, resulting in aboutness. And what we mean by aboutness, in case you're not familiar with that, is um, you can have a thought about uh, a particular thing. You can think about Star Wars. You can think about this program right now. Uh, but what is a rock about? What is what? What are physical objects about? In order to have aboutness and intentionality, we have to have this first-person conscious subjective experience that we all have, and naturalism has difficulty accounting for that. Now, I want us to talk about that. I also want us to talk about a couple other things, or you to notice a couple other things as we move through this. Number one is I want you to notice <clears throat> the the fact that even though these are some of these are very well known. Um, discussions and arguments and uh, difficulties within um, the realm of worldview uh, debate. It's interesting, Christian philosophers have raised these things uh, many, many times before, but yet some atheists and skeptics still seem to be somewhat unaware or not exactly clear on what we're saying on this. Now, perhaps that's our fault from not making it clear enough, but on an issue like this, this has been covered so many times in so many books and on so many podcasts and, and videos and things like that. Um, it's very odd, and uh, that, that's strange considering the fact that the atheist on this uh, particular uh episode of Unbelievable, is a guy who I think probably is the best right now that YouTube atheism has to offer. He kind of transcends YouTube atheism. He's had live public debates. Uh, he's going to Oxford. He's, I think he's an undergrad at Oxford, um, and he's positioning himself to be probably one of the major atheist voices in the future. Uh, nevertheless, throughout this entire discussion, what we continue to see is um, Alex O'Connor uh, trying to address issues that aren't the central item that Max is raising as an item of concern. And Max and even the host, uh, Justin Brierley, have to continually say, well, that's not, that's not really the key point that we're trying to get to. The key point we're trying to get to is this issue of aboutness and how it is that matter can result in aboutness. And so that's an interesting thing. And, you know, I think, uh, number one, it tells you that perhaps this is an issue that you should pay more attention to. 
um, and uh, learn about so that you can use it when you're talking with skeptics or if you're a skeptic that you can consider, did I really understand exactly what was being said there? And maybe I should consider it more deeply. Um, and that's not a slight, again, to uh, my atheist audience or to Alex O'Connor, who I think, again, is brilliant. And I think he's the best or at least among the best that uh, young atheism and YouTube atheism has to offer. Um, the other thing that I want you to notice is uh, often I, I've seen this happen. And I think it's important even when we're talking about deductive arguments, but um, there are different kinds of arguments. And often what I see among our atheist friends is this, this idea that if in any way I can wiggle out of whatever you're saying, if I can find any possible explanation that, that I don't even know if it's true, but so long as it's possibly true, then it gets me out of the teeth of the argument that you're making. Uh, that's what's known as a philosophical defeater. But atheists apply it even to probabilistic arguments where we're just trying to raise the probability. You know, not every argument is this slam dunk deductive. If premise one and premise two are true, then the conclusion must follow necessarily. And so, you know, there it is. It's this clinching argument. It's like a slam dunk or whatever. And so you've got to shoot down one of our premises. They're not all like that. Some arguments are probabilistic. And uh, because they're probabilistic, what you want to ask is which explanation is more plausible or more likely to be true? Which one should we? belief. And, and, and it seems like many times, and Christians may do this too, I don't know, but I'm, I'm, you know, that's for the atheists to, to present me with. But um, many times atheists, I, I've noticed, will try to present it as though if I can find any explanation, no matter how outlandish, to get out of what you're saying, then I'm off the hook and I don't have to believe this. But when it comes to probabilistic arguments where we're looking for plausibility, then it's a little bit different. And if you don't understand exactly what I'm saying, you will as we move forward. So let's begin now and take a look as uh, Max begins to set up kind of what he wants to say in this discussion. Okay, um, well, let me just say something in general about how I approach philosophical arguments um, about God and metaphysics. So I generally um, am not that fond of deductive arguments where you have some premises that are supposed to logically entail their conclusion. Um, and I prefer probabilistic arguments. Um, one reason for that for that is just that I think with deductive arguments, um, it, it look it has the surface appearance of giving a certain conclusion if the premises are true. But but of course, actually, the problem is rarely are we ever certain that the premises are true, and then the conclusion can't be more certain than the premises. So I prefer just to make the the uncertainty explicit in the way we formulate the argument. So I prefer. Okay, so he's going for a probabilistic argument. Now, what? Now, here's the difference. Here's what's important for you to understand is with a deductive argument, with, with a more uh, clinching sort of the, the way you could phrase it there, where if premise one and premise two are true, then the conclusion must necessarily follow and all these kind of things. Uh, those kind of arguments are typically making a stronger claim, um, but they're... Uh, theoretically easier to shoot down because all you have to do is show any possible uh, explanation that would not lead to that conclusion. So uh, think about with problem of the, the problem of evil argument that atheists often bring. So you have what's called the logical arguments from evil and then you have evidential arguments from evil. And the evidential arguments from evil are probabilistic. So uh, the logical arguments from evil are something more like um, uh, like uh, 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 Epicurus argument where, where he's basically showing, trying to show that uh, it is not possible that God so defined exists, 
uh, given these facts. Well, all you have to do there to shoot down the logical argument from evil is to show any possible explanation, any possible reason God might have for allowing evil, and yet he's still an all-loving, all-powerful God, all-knowing God, and all those kind of things. All you have to do is show any possible explanation. You don't even have to know if it's true or not, and then it serves as a defeater to the claim that it must be the case that such a God so defined does not exist. Whereas with evidential arguments from evil, and I know we're not talking about arguments from evil here, but this is by way of analogy, or by way of example, I guess. Um, with evidential arguments from evil, what you're trying to do there is you're trying to show that given these certain facts about evil, and typically it's uh, given certain facts about gratuitous evils that didn't have to, you know, the, the evils that, that don't seem to serve any greater purpose, um, it's less likely. That, so the, the person giving an evidential argument from evil is not saying, therefore, God does not exist. They're saying it, it's, you sh you know, it's far less likely that God exists. You shouldn't conclude that God exists, given all these things. So uh, it's less plausible that God exists. So which of those two is making the stronger claim? The logical argument from evil or the evidential argument from evil? Well, the logical argument from evil is making the stronger claim because it seeks to show that God, therefore God does not exist, right? Whereas the evidential argument from evil is trying to say it's less likely we should, you know, therefore maybe we shouldn't believe it or something, but it's less likely that God exists. So uh, it's making the softer claim, but which one is easier to refute? Well, the logical argument is easier to refute because all you have to do is show some possible explanation that would, um, that why a loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God would allow for evil. Whereas the evidential argument is harder to refute, but of course it's making a somewhat softer claim. that it's, They're not saying that it's a slam dunk, that God doesn't exist. They're just saying it's less likely. So uh, to, to recap then, um, the, the logical arguments from evil, for example, are uh, making the stronger statement but are a little easier to shoot down, whereas the evidential arguments from evil are making uh, a little bit more uh, modest statement but are more difficult to shoot down. And so in this discussion, what he's saying is when I talk about these things, when I set up my arguments, it's probabilistic. It's more like the evidential argument from evil, except forget the fact that that's a topic about the arguments from evil. Um, but, but when I make my arguments for, against naturalism or for God's existence or whatever, I'm doing something probabilistic, which means I'm making a more modest claim. There could be some explanation for that natural ha naturalism has for this, but it's more plausible to reject naturalism in this case, or it's more plausible to believe that God exists. So he's making a more modest claim, but it's, it's more difficult to shoot down than if he was giving you a, a, like a clinching, slam-dunk, deductive argument. So I uh, wanted to make that clear as we move forward. Let's see what else he says by way of discussion on this. For probabilistic arguments, and without going into sort of lots of detail, you know, Bayes' theorem is the way that a lot of philosophers will kind of formulate probabilistic mm -hmm. arguments. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just to give a, an example that has nothing to do with God, I mean, suppose that, um, you know, we've got a piece of evidence um, namely that the leaves on someone's lawn sort of spell out their name and then we, we're considering two hypotheses one is that there that the person's spouse kind of raked the leaves into this nice pattern to spell out their name the other is that the wind did it um now um you know it looks as though one of those hypotheses makes this observation of the the leaves spelling out this name one of those hypotheses makes that piece of data more much more probable mm. than the other one mm. and so it 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 probabilistically confirms the the spouse did it mm -hmm. hypothesis um, but not with certainty yeah. you know sure. it is possible that the wind did yeah. it yeah. um so that's that's just to say about yeah. you know in general how i approach these things 
And so I think... Okay, so now that's that's an important thing. So you understand what he's saying. He's saying it could be that the wind did it. You see, this is why it's not like this slam dunk, you know, sort of thing. It's 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 possible that the wind did it, but which one is more likely? Well, it's more likely that the spouse raked the leaves into a particular... And you can do this with less obvious things. I mean, that's a very clear, obvious example. You can do it with less obvious things, and of course it's more difficult. But so, for example, let's say that I came uh, home in the middle of the day unexpectedly and uh, uh, no one is at home, but I see that this episode of Unbelievable is frozen, is paused on my television screen at home. Okay, what are the possibilities? Let's say there are three possibilities for that. One possibility is my wife decided that she would listen to this episode of Unbelievable. Okay, that's one explanation, but it's not, it, it doesn't seem likely because uh, my wife just isn't into apologetics like I am or these worldview discussions, right? She's, she's a strong Christian, but she's focused on other areas of her Christian discipline, right, than apologetics, uh, much to my dismay. But then, um, uh, on the other hand, let's say that um, uh, another explanation is that aliens uh, wanted to confuse me, and so they uh, put this episode of Unbelievable on my screen and paused it here. Or there's a third explanation, and that is that my uh, friend Andy uh, was asked by my wife to come over and feed the dog because she was going to be at, you know, out of the area, or come over and walk the dog. And while he was over there, it happened to be his lunch break, and so he decided to watch this episode of Unbelievable, which he regularly watches. Okay, now which one of those is more likely? Well, um, the alien one seems completely ad hoc and, and not likely at all. I mean, is it technically possible? Sure, it's, it's possible uh, for all I know, right? Uh, but really not likely. So we put that one off the table. Um, is it possible that my wife uh, could have decided all of a sudden, hey, my wife, my, bro my husband is into uh, these worldview discussions. I'm going to get into it and happen to pick the one that I'm doing a an episode about today. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is possible. Uh, but but it, is it more likely than the third explanation? Um, and the third explanation with my friend Andy, he is, he does listen to Unbelievable. He likes it, watches about every episode. Um, I did mention that I was going to be uh, maybe doing an episode on this today. And so he would be interested in hearing what I might respond to about this. And, um, and he, I do remember that my wife was going to be gone all day and she regularly asks him to come over to walk the dog. And, um, uh, so what, what's the best explanation? And he did, he was gone today on his lunch break. He works with me, but he's gone on his lunch break. So I put all these things together. What's the more likely explanation? Uh, probably that my friend Andy was over there. Um, so, so you, you can do this in various ways. Now, it, are any of these things a slam dunk? No, but you're looking for what's most probable. Now, here's what that means. That means that this idea that an atheist could just give some, you know, no matter how unlikely explanation that would out, you know, that, that might possibly be true. While that may work better with these slam dunk arguments or arguments that are attempting to be slam dunk arguments, they don't work that well with probabilistic arguments because, okay, you've got some weird explanation, but which one's more likely? You know, if your explanation is less likely than the one I've offered, then the one I've offered is the more plausible explanation. So I wanted you to get that and, and see kind of how those work. Um, now, we're going to listen here, and we're going to hear him kind of uh, uh, put, put another layer onto this discussion. So what we've got so far is this idea that, look, matter doesn't seem to have this property of aboutness, but we do seem to think, and we can think about things, but you couldn't like... Uh, some way the way sometimes the way it's characterized is you couldn't crack open my head and 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 see the things that I'm thinking about and and um, the physical matter that makes up my brain isn't about something and and so how is it that I'm able to have thoughts about things this aboutness doesn't seem to make much sense on naturalism but it does seem to make sense if naturalism is false all right so let's let's hear some more about that. Are more 
more probable given a hypothesis where consciousness, purpose, value, and so on are mm. at the base layer, uh, as as compared with on a, a naturalistic hypothesis, which, which you is know just we've just laid out the, the physical layer. stuff yeah. at the base layer. Okay. So so intentionality is one such phenomenon. So intentionality is basically the aboutness of thoughts. So uh, just to take an example, that take take the word London. Um, you know, so we can all be thinking um, of the word London in our heads, and and it that word is about something. It's about the city in which we're having this conversation, <clears throat> and the the basic thought is here that um, this uh, property of thoughts, um, where thoughts are are able to to have representational content, they're they're able to be about something other than themselves. Um, is difficult to square with this naturalist uh, picture of, of what reality is made of. Um, the thought being that, um, you, um, if you like, atoms swerving in the void, uh, that's what thoughts have to be at the end of the day if naturalism is true. Um, atoms swerving in the void can't be about anything. Um, and so... Um, you know, and, and actually, <clears throat> this is a problem that, that is recognized by a number of um, leading naturalist philosophers. So John Searle, um, who's written a lot on this sort of stuff, says that so far no attempt at naturalizing intentional content has ever produced an explanation of intentional content that's remotely plausible. Now, I'm sure a Alex will probably want to bring up computers, and what we'll, I'll, I'll leave that yeah. for now. We can come yeah. back to that. But the, the basic thought here is um, that simply, you know, an, an arrangement of atoms mm. um, can no more be about the city in yeah. which we find ourselves than this table can be. Right. Um, and so, so that's that's one phenomenon that seems hard to account for, given what naturalism says the world but is made of. Before yeah. you come to the yeah. others, um, we, we, we're fast approaching almost our, our first break, so time. Okay, so so he's kind of illustrated again what we've already been saying. So I won't spend too much time commenting on that, but I think he gives a great explanation. There is um, how can a, a collection of atoms be about London? right? <laughs> London is a concept. London is what we call this city, this uh, community of people, the, the physical structures of it, you know, all these kind of things. Um, how can a collection of atoms be about that or anything else? So I think this has been explained pretty well now. I, I think that the, the idea is how can physical stuff be about something? It's this issue of aboutness that is of principal importance. Now, what you're going to see throughout the rest of this is Alex responding uh, to something, but not responding with precision to what Max is actually raising. And you'll see uh, Max and, I think, um, uh, Justin Brierley having to uh, kind of bring him back to the main point. Now, again, uh, this is not to, this is not to ha you know, slight to Alex or anything. It's just to show that I think some of these things that are really powerful, uh, perhaps we haven't done a good, a good enough job explaining. I don't think that's the case, but, um, but I would like for our skeptical audience to consider, did I really understand what the Christians were saying there or the theists were saying there? Um, and for Christians, maybe uh, get some more precision when you make these arguments as well. All right, so uh, let's move on now and let's take a look at how this goes next. Alex O'Connor, well known as the Cosmic Skeptic Online, is here to respond. Um, and okay, lots to respond to there. Um, mm. as, and I don't know where you want to begin, but maybe we'll, we'll start with this issue of intentionality yeah. that, uh, that Max first brought up, which is the aboutness of thoughts, that we have thoughts that are about London, for instance. And, and in what sense can a, you know, something that ultimately is, is reducible to a physical thing 
atoms, electrons, and so on, be about anything. Um, as I say, huge metaphysical problem in the philosophy of mind, but um, where, where would you begin with, with that well, kind of an issue? I, I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. It, I, I'm struggling almost to see the contention. I think that the, the capacity for abstract thought that, and the uh, explanations for how that could have developed um, within human consciousness is not particularly controversial. And I'd also say that, for instance, there are people who are not capable of thinking about London, namely people who've never heard of London and never experienced London. Um, in other words, the, the thoughts that we have that are about things are predicated on our on our experience of these things, right? An evolutionary account of how we've come to develop our cognitive faculties would be perfectly in line with this view of reality that um, there is a selective advantage in being able to think abstractly. There is a selective advantage about being able to remember things that we've experienced and think about them when they're not immediately in our face. Um, it's, it's clear to see how these things could be evolutionarily selected for. And this is why I think this actually ties into the last argument that was made, which I think is the most interesting one, um, about how if things came about through naturalistic processes, it seems that we would have selected for uh, survival rather than for truth. Mm. Right? Like why we, this, we, this was Alvin Plantinga's famous evolutionary yes. argument against natural. Well, we do, you know, we don't, as, as, um, as we've discussed, we don't evolve to do quantum physics, but it's mm. like, I think that that's evidenced by the fact that we are currently trying to use reason to overcome our naturalistic uh, approach to something like quantum physics. And okay, so now he says a couple of things. Uh, Alex says a couple of things about um, the issue at hand, which is, well, look, it's advantageous to be able to think abstractly, and it's advantageous to uh, be able to remember things. And so that would be something that evolution would, quote unquote, select for, right? Um, uh, <clears throat> well, that's, that's fine. But as we're going to see later, it's not just whether it's beneficial for us to be able to th remember things and think abstractly. It's how how can thoughts themselves abstract or otherwise how can how can naturalism account for this aboutness that matter is about something whether it's abstract or otherwise whether it's a memory or otherwise how can we get aboutness out of physical matter and so he then goes off about alvin planting his argument and how it doesn't work and he tries to say look we can overcome we can even for those that don't know alvin planting is basically saying look um evolution uh, if you grant evolution, evolution uh, uh, results in uh, animals, creatures uh, of a higher order that uh, it, it's angled towards survival, that these animals would be able to survive better in their environments, not truth. And so sometimes uh, you might think those two things go together, but not necessarily so. An example that often comes up and will come up here is uh, animals might result in, uh, they may develop uh, this idea that if a bush is rustling, they should run away from that because it's a predator. Well, it might not actually be a predator. In fact, it could be a food source. Uh, so the, the angle there is towards survival, right, rather than for truth. And so, uh, so then why should you trust anything, you know, that your brain is telling you? Because uh, your brain is not wired to get you to truth. Your brain is to get you to survival, right? Um, but, but he goes off about that and how we can then overcome the, uh, the, the problems that are there, that yeah, that may be true, but we can overcome that because now we can use our reason recognizing that to try and get to truth. And that, that's all fine and good, but it does nothing to overcome this problem of aboutness. And then he asks some questions, uh, clarifying questions about how arguments work. But, um, but let's go ahead now to the next thing and let's see what uh, Max has to say. I mean, I think the point here is supposed to be uh, quite a fundamental one. It's not just the capacity for abstract thought. It's the, th it's the capacity for 
any thought whatsoever to have any representational content whatsoever. And and you said that um, evolution you know gives us accounts of how cognition would have developed, and I don't really dispute that. But I think the key point is ev those evolutionary models are silent on these metaphysical questions of uh, yes, just 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 to be able to kind of then just present this in a package and, and allow Alex to respond to it. So let's say, you know, that taking that argument, um, all humans are mortal, mm. Socrates is a human, therefore Socrates is mortal, okay. So the person sort of thinking about that, reasoning yeah. that through, they're having to have thoughts about Socrates being yeah. human, they've got to have a thought about all humans being mortal. Um, and and so the, at the first level, from what I heard you saying earlier, Max, the, the, the point is, how 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 do these physical events in our brain mm. map onto mm -hmm. um, uh, something being about someone, yeah. about Socrates, about his mortality, yes. and so on? Um, and then, secondly, how do we how do we see, if you like, that those two things together mm. entail yes. the conclusion? And, yeah, and 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 that again is an, is is a linked but different issue in in this kind of causation. Yes. as you see it. You know the. Why does one physical event entail this other mm. yes. physical event? All right, so we've got it all clarified now. It's about aboutness. How is it that we are even, it's not just abstract thoughts. How are we able to even have thoughts and this self-awareness that is about something and have thoughts about something? And, uh, and, and when we're thinking about an argument, like the simple argument that was just laid out, um, we as thinking agents have to be able to understand what uh, what that's about. What what it, you know when we talk about Socrates, when we talk about uh, mortality and, and these kind of things, we're having thoughts that are about something and how they're related. And so let's see what Cosmic Skeptic has to say in response. Event, but but it's actually the content of those thoughts. And and yeah. So should we pass the ball back? Just yes. No. That, that's point. helpful. Uh, Thanks, is, is Justin. That yeah, of, that's good. I mean, yeah. No, there yeah. Are, there are two important and separable questions. Mm. The first being knowledge of like the premises, but secondly, mm. as you say, knowledge of the validity of the mm. inference. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that, as I say, deductive arguments are just tautological, meaning that what we're talking about is an ability to recognize that two things mm. are the same. Right. It's an ability in, in the same way that like. Um, if you have two thoughts that are just identical in content, if you have, you know, um, the bus is red, therefore the bus is red, to ask about how we could know that that's a valid inference seem, seems a bit strange. It's like surely we're just talking about the ability to recognize that two things are the same. It's not, it's not really about a relationship between them. It's about just recognizing a similarity. And I think that's what's going on in a deductive argument. When we say that all men are mortal and that Socrates is, is, is a man, we are saying that uh, Socrates is mortal. It's essentially just a linguistic feature that we separate these into two premises and ultimately a conclusion. And we say that we derive the conclusion. I think that we derive the conclusion linguistically, but, but what we're actually just doing is reframing the premises into a new form that are, you know, that is a helpful thing to do for philosophy because we can then kind of build upon those conclusions as well. But that's what mm -hmm. I think we're talking about is just a recognition that two things are the same. I don't know if you agree does with that. that. Does that? Um, yeah. So I, I'm uh, this idea that um, all deductive arguments are tautologies. I mean, 
Um, okay, I, so now notice, he that was brought up, but here Cosmic Skeptic has focused in on that, and he's going off about the relationships between any two things. But this doesn't really get to the point that we want to get to, which is that still wouldn't account for the aboutness issue. That's what we're trying to get to. And now we've tried two or three different ways to get to this issue of how can something be about something else. And we want to see if we can get there. And so let's, uh, let's see what happens here. I mean, to say it's a tautology makes it sound like... I mean, let's suppose it is, but that doesn't really help us understand this this um, you know thing that I've been alluding to is this question of well, how if thoughts are atoms swerving in the void, is it the case that those atoms are about modus ponens? Yeah, I, I suppose for me that's the yeah. central point but, here. But I, it, I feel it, like it's. I think it's it's not it, to say that the atoms are about something is okay. Now we're going to get to uh, cosmic skeptic in just a minute, but you notice here, Justin. I, I feel like this is the point we're trying to get to. Like this is it. It's almost as though he's saying, "Look, we're, we're we've talked about a lot of things here, but but this is the chief issue. How can physical stuff be about something?" Let's see what Alex says is to kind of, it's using something of a reverse fallacy of composition, it seems to me, to be saying that everything's made up of atoms, therefore thoughts must be, if a thought is about London, it must just be atoms about London in some sense. It's like, I think it's in the same way as saying like a book is made of atoms, but a book can be about London, despite the atoms of the book being made up of not about London, if you see mm -hmm. what I'm saying, right? So like we're talking about a naturalistic process which has given rise to something mm -hmm. which can attach mm -hmm. itself to abstract thought. We're not talking about the process itself uh, and the building blocks upon which it's based um, being the thing that does the thinking, right? It's, yeah, it, it's so just, just as like a, yeah. a, an atom mm -hmm. is not self-replicating uh, to, to kind of, because when we talk about consciousness and, and, mm -hmm. and it, it kind of muddies the, the waters because it becomes a bit um, difficult to think about. But with any other evolutionary process, we can recognize, you know, a, a, an atom is not self-replicating, but you put enough atoms together in the right sort of way mm -hmm. and you get a cell that's self-replicating. Um, All right, so I want to explain, if you don't know what this uh, fallacy of composition is, it's where you say, uh, it's where you make the mistake of thinking that uh, what's true of the whole must be true of each individual member. So um, if we're talking about a dog, for example, one of the classic examples is um, an, an atom is invisible to the naked eye. Dogs are made of atoms. Therefore, dogs are invisible to the naked eye. Well, obviously that's false, right? That's not that's not sound at all. And the reason is because the atom, any individual atom, right, is is uh, invisible to the naked eye. But when you put them together in such a formation that you have a dog, dogs are very much of it. So what's true of the individual parts isn't necessarily true of the whole. Now, here's the problem that I think a lot of naturalists make. Often this comes up with the Kalam cosmological argument that say, well, uh, when we're talking about that, we say, well, you know, everything that begins to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe must have a cause. They say, well, now, hold on. You're just going from all the individual parts of the universe seem to have causes, uh, you know, things in the universe. So, but that doesn't mean you can say that the whole universe must have had uh, a cause, right? That's a fallacy of composition. You're saying what seems to be true of the parts is true of the whole. Well, there's a whole other reason that avoids the fallacy of composition that you can look in our other videos about that. But simply put, one thing that needs to be said is not every time you talk about composition, it, there's not necessarily a fallacy there. So for example, every part of the fence, every, every different picket of the green fence is green. Um, therefore, the fence is green. Right. Okay. Well, that's true. If every part of the fence, every picket in the fence is green and then you got the whole fence, it's green too. Right. So there's not, there's no fallacy of composition there. So it's not always the case. And that definitely needs to be said here. But what Alex is saying is, is right. He's like, look, 
um, it's kind of like this. Take a, a puzzle, right? A, a puzzle of Star Wars. We're going to go with Star Wars motif for this episode. So you've got a puzzle, a two-dimensional puzzle of, of the poster for Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, all right? Um, each individual piece of the puzzle isn't the puzzle. It isn't the whole picture. It isn't the poster. It isn't the, the full poster. But uh, when you put them all together, right, then you have the poster for Star Wars Episode Four. So that's kind of what he's, what he's saying there. And he seems to be arguing that, look, you, you put all this together and you could get maybe something uh, that has aboutness or whatever. But we're going to come back to that later. But let's see where it goes from here. Um, and, and that's... That's not a, that's not a problem. Like I wouldn't turn around and say, mm -hmm. but like it makes no sense on a naturalistic worldview to say that a cell is self-replicating because it, it, if it's made of nothing more than atoms, then how can an how can an atom kind of bring about that process? I mean, what I'm hearing from you, Alex, is of course you know mm -hmm. this electron banging into that electron doesn't equal a thought about London or Socrates, but when you have a complex brain structure that's doing all kinds of clever things. That yeah. is a kind of emergent property to use one of those. Just, just as to mention oh, computers, okay. as you briefly mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, if, you, if you're somebody who believes in the concept of artificial intelligence, that we can have computers <clears throat> that essentially can think about things in an electronic sense, right? And they're not thinking about things in a conscious sense, but we're not talking here about being necessarily <coughs> aware of the thoughts we're having, but just the capability mm. of thoughts <coughs> to be had about these things. Like, um, it's a similar kind of process going on in the brain. It's just that it's made of biological stuff instead of electronic stuff. So you've got books, and he's saying books can be about something. You could have a book that is about London, or you could have a computer program that is about, uh, you know, word processing or whatever. You know, so you can have, he's saying, physical objects that are about something in, in a certain way. Let's hear what Max has to say. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you brought up books, and that's a little bit similar to the case of computers in a way, in the following sense. So, I mean, I think... Um, you, you know, you made the point that um, a book is made of atoms. I would agree with that. And yet a book is about lots of stuff, presumably. <clears throat> Doesn't that show that a thing that is basically built out of physical stuff can have intentionality? And I think that the, the response there would be simply that the intentionality, if we want to call it that, of books and, and you know, um, code in a computer is a derived intentionality. Yeah, it comes from their maker, right? Yeah, right. So, so I mean, take an example of Deep Blue, the chess computer, and, and it makes a certain move. Um, the move to the computer itself has no meaning. It's a string of, uh, presumably, of ones and zeros. But it, within a framework that we confer on, you know, on the move, um, the move has meaning. Um, and John Searle actually kind of made this point um, with what's known as the, the sort of Chinese room analogy. Um, and, and the idea there is basically, you know, imagine yourself, suppose that you don't know Chinese, but you're sitting in a room where someone's feeding Chinese characters into the room and, and you've been given a set of rules of if it's, if it's this character, then it goes into this box. And you can do this all day. And, um, and the thought is essentially that's what a computer is doing on a very complex level. But the computer, th there is no meaning or intentionality yeah. for the, the person. The computer sorting. isn't thinking, I need to do this to do that. Yeah. It's simply <clears> following <throat> a set of instructions, essentially. That's right. And so. Which so, we have imbued with me. Yeah. So yeah. any appearance of intentionality is there solely in virtue of our intentionality. And so then you're back to the problem that we started with, which is how to account for our intentionality. So there's, there's an interesting... 
All right, so if you try books um, or you try computers, hey, they're physical things that are about something. Well, only insofar as we have uh, imbued them with aboutness, right? We have, we have uh, put characters on a page that uh, the book isn't having a conscious experience of aboutness. Uh, the person writing the book did. The person writing the computer code did. So it just brings you back to us again. And again, back to physical things can't be about something. It doesn't seem. It seems like that's uh, something that is part of a personal, first-person, subjective, conscious experience. All right, let's move forward. See what else Alex has to try. And what it's kind of boiled down to in the end, I feel like, Alex, is, is a sort of that classic question of, of how does physical stuff produce consciousness or yeah. the aboutness of our thoughts and this is a debate we've kind of done with other people okay look now i want you to notice here that we are 56 minutes and 37 seconds into their discussion and what justin is trying to say is look i think what it boils down to is how does physical stuff have aboutness this is him trying to press alex to address that question directly and you know he says what it boils down to. It does boil down to that, but it boiled down to that early on in the episode. And why did it take this long for us to get to this point? And, and we're still not sure we're there yet. Where he says, look, this is what it's about. I, I need to get the answer to this question. People like Daniel Dennett and, and many others over the years. Um, but it seems quite fundamental to, to this argument from, certainly from is, reason. Yeah. Because it's that classic problem of if, if at the bottom of all of this there's, there's physical stuff going on, where does the, you know, the, the, the aboutness of the mind come stuff from, come from? Yeah, uh, which which then produces this entanglement problem potentially and, and yeah. everything else. But so th this problem, I mean, th this problem, as you say, it's just kind of like, uh, it, it's just the question of how we get from uh, fr from natural explanations to, to talking about minds, right? And mm. this is why I bring up something like memory. I feel like it's 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 analogous, if not uh, strictly relevant, because it's like it seems to be kind of a different category of stuff, something like memory. It's like brain processes, mind processes. It seems to have more agency behind it. But it's not a controversial thing to say that that can arise from naturalistic processes. And as we were just briefly discussing in the break, it's like we don't fully understand, perhaps never will fully understand the brain. It's the most complex thing we've ever discovered in the universe, right? And like there are, there are areas such as this which are a bit hazy. But it seems to me that um, our naturalistic explanations of the brain are... are quite sufficient to explain most of its phenomena. And even if it can't quite explain consciousness, which many people will claim that it can, um, but even if it can't, like, I, I think that then just almost becomes an argument from, um, an argument from, I don't know what the, the exact uh, term to use here would be, perhaps an argument from ignorance, perhaps an argument um, from... And if you're pushing it in the direction of God, a, a God of the gaps, essentially. <coughs> I suppose so, but it, it's, it's, not, it's not quite, because I mean, you're not just kind of saying this is, this is God, you're talking about kind of an unexplained area of, of psychology and, mm. and uh, hypothesizing some kind of supernatural agency. I, I think that that's a, perhaps a, a step that we don't need to take or we're a bit too hasty to take. I, I think that we should just recognize that like, I, I mean, uh, for instance, perhaps to wrap up that, that kind of part of the discussion, do, do you think it's possible for a process of thought uh, and thinking about things and intentionalism, this kind of stuff? to arise from naturalistic processes? Do you think it's possible at all? Like, do you think it's like conceivably mm -hmm. possible in principle? So now notice here, he's setting up for, Alex is setting up for, if it's possible at all, then it, it means that it's not necessarily the case that naturalism is false. But remember, this is a probabilistic issue and not one of these 
uh, hardcore slam dunk logical issues like we talked about before. So let's see what Max has to say. Um, no, so I think that given that, um, given how we've defined naturalism earlier in the program, that the, the basic resources that you have to, to, if you like, to build conscious, well, and, and actually we haven't talked about conscious experience itself, which I would say is actually one layer more fundamental than intentionality, just that the, the, the existence of a first person subjective perspective, mm. um, just see, and I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you sort of be open at least to thinking that we, we don't have an, an explanation for that at least currently but yeah I, I mean what i want to say there is it, it's not a sort of claim that um we don't yet sort of know that the mechanism or the arrangement uh, we don't fully understand the arrangement of physical stuff that you would need to get this first person perspective and then this aboutness it's it, it is something more fundamental than that namely that the, the ingredients that naturalism gives us are not they they um they don't en enable us to to build that kind of stuff um the physical stuff um which has no first person perspective is no matter the thought is yeah no matter how you combine it no matter how complex the arrangement that physical stuff is never going to produce a first person perspective Okay, now hold on. So uh, Alex brought up earlier the fallacy of composition, and he's talking now uh, about is there any, do you see any way that naturalism could account for this? And, um, and Max is saying no. And the reason is, all right, let's, let's go back to the fallacy of composition, which isn't under discussion at this very moment, but I think it serves a great analogy. So Alex's previous statement was, yeah, any individual atom doesn't, bumping into another atom doesn't give you aboutness. And it, and it also doesn't give you this first person subjective conscious experience that we have. But enough of them, perhaps in a sophisticated enough arrangement, like something as sophisticated as our brains, perhaps could give you something like that. Okay. Now let's think about that for a minute. Imagine that you have the Star Wars puzzle, right? Each individual piece of the puzzle doesn't give you the picture of the poster for Star Wars Episode Four. But forgive all the sniffles. I'm I'm still sick. Uh, but uh, but uh, but Alex is saying something like, "Yeah, but if you put all the puzzle pieces together, you've got Star Wars Episode Four's poster, right?" Fair enough. But what I take Max to be saying is something more like, "Fine." Have your individual pieces of the puzzle that when put all together make this really sophisticated picture of the um, poster for A New Hope, Star Wars Episode Four. Nevertheless, the problem that you're facing now, Alex, is what you're trying to say. What we're talking about here is more like saying if you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, they don't just give you the poster for Star Wars Episode Four, A New Hope. What they actually give you is the movie itself. And we get to hear the, the, the actors and, and see the action and all these kind of things. And Max is saying something akin to, and this is an analogy, but Max is saying something akin to, that is a completely different mode of being. That is a completely different sort of phenomenon than what the puzzle pieces are capable of producing for us. I'll give you that if you arrange them, perhaps you get this two-dimensional poster. What you don't get is this incredible phenomenon of the actual... Uh, film that we see on the screen and all these kind of things that, that you know, it, it's that's a completely different mode of being. That's a completely different thing. And you can't get there just from these puzzle pieces. So, no, I don't think you're asking me, do you think there's any way that you could arrange these puzzle pieces that would give you, is it even possible that they would give you something like the film itself? And he's saying no, because that's just not what these things even do. That's that's the wrong 
that's the wrong idea. That's the wrong set of possibilities from from this. So hopefully that will help a little bit in understanding exactly what's going on. Um, yeah. If 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 the court, you know, yeah, I see what you mean. I, I think yeah. that that's perhaps a difference. And because to me, I've had a lot of conversations with people about this this topic of like how something like awareness can arise. And perhaps we should have discussed that because I think it's really interesting mm. and something I've been. <clears throat> Uh, reading a lot about uh, specifically in relation to non-human animals and whether mm -hmm. they have awareness too. Um, it seems to me that like you can you can have a process by which uh, if, uh, if an object or an organism or, or a molecule or something begins to kind of react to its environment mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a purely naturalistic sense, we can begin to see what we might call the origins of self-awareness, like an, an ability to react to an environment. Mm -hmm. You can understand <coughs> why it would be more advantageous if as well as being able to kind of so so let's say that you kind of uh r like like a like the flower that follows the sun across the sky that kind of thing it's like that's obviously not a kind of uh, that's not evidence of self-awareness but if we talk about the development of of faculty like that um, we can see why it would be beneficial to have not just a kind of um not just a, a, a what you might call an instinctual reaction which mm. is essentially what it would be to kind of a, a desire to do so, uh, uh, developing the experiences of pleasure and pain, right? Mm. And if you experience a develop, if you experience, uh, if you develop the experience for pain, um, then you can experience, th then you can develop the experience of desires, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and the complexity just kind of keeps building, and, and, and awareness can be seen on this kind of gradual scope. We don't need to see it as a kind of on-off switch, right? And if we do, then I think mm. it would be the on-off switch of, of pain and pleasure, which is a fairly simple thing to explain <coughs> evolutionarily, if you, if you see what I'm saying. Mm. Um, I think that kind of looking at it in, in a grand scheme of kind of the evolution of basic uh, mm. awareness uh, of our surroundings, reactions to our surroundings, and how that can just become more complex to involve pleasure and pain and then desire, and then see how that would, uh, again, that's talking about like awareness specifically, mm. you then have to make <coughs> further kind of added complexity of, of abstract thought. Um, mm. But I think, yeah, yeah, well, what I could, do you do you think there's something in that narrative of okay, you start with something very simple mm. like just an organism, <clears throat> you know, a, a single cell organism that doesn't want to go into yeah. that, you know, you know that, that has some kind of instinctual reaction to something, eventually with. So here's another attempt. The, this attempt is again to say, look, gradually these instincts could possibly result in a conscious awareness that then we could have thoughts like aboutness. And so what's Max going to say? You have this puzzle. Why does there need to be? I mean, you talked about selective advantage, Alex. Now, what I think I'd be happy to grant is that there's selective advantage in my brain being in certain states that make me my body move in certain ways that get me to do stuff. But then if the physical stuff that's happening in the brain is causally sufficient, why does there need to be, from an evolutionary point of view, this, this other quite different thing, this first-person subjective perspective? You know, so um, philosophers of mind would say that you know, if you're committed to this idea of causal closure, you know, physical causes are sufficient to account for everything, including our behavior. Consciousness would have to be an, an epiphenomenon, a bit like the steam that comes off a kettle. It's not, it's not causally necessary to explain our behavior. So I, I think yeah. you've got this further puzzle of why would this mm. yeah, well, I, th I, th I think it makes a lot of sense to just say that. Okay, so you understand what he's saying is he's saying, look, uh, if naturalism is true, 
you could you could you could have a being that functions kind of like a computer you know functions and reacts to stimuli and does all the things but why would it have this first person subjective conscious awareness why would it be self-aware why would it have qualia which are these impressions of experience that we have that uh, presumably robots don't have that your alexa at home doesn't have right why it seems like what you would get is a world of biological robots that are all doing the things right and they're reacting to stimuli but they're not consciously aware like we are you know it doesn't doesn't seem like and it seems like if that did happen it would be some kind of a weird emergent property that is a byproduct and not necessary for evolution because evolution is there remember for survival and progress so let's see what um what cosmic skeptic has to say uh, an understanding of of <coughs> an organism's own place within uh its environment and its community is kind of has seemingly obvious advantages but also even if it doesn't, if it were just an offshoot, of course, evolution doesn't just um, doesn't necessarily like stop the production of useless things, right? Like you, you can have side effects, you can have things that aren't harmful that just happen. In other words, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe on evolution, our subjective conscious experience and our uh, knowledge of aboutness is just a happy accident. Maybe, hey, for all we know, I mean, evolution does stuff all the time that it's not trying to do, quote unquote. Happen to be there. If that's the case, then the fact that the, the argument that I could make um, for the development of, of uh, justified reason in human beings might be an evolutionary offshoot, but that doesn't affect the truth mm -hmm. of, of whether it, of its accuracy or not, if you know what I mean. Like, like sure, maybe, maybe it is just an offshoot, but that doesn't mean that, it, that it's not an accurate offshoot. It doesn't mean that it doesn't actually hold to the truth. We'll do a quick response, and then yeah. I just want to wrap up with the the kind of but question I, of whether it yeah. takes us in the but direction. But I, also, of God I just want to yeah. make sure that people people are aware. Like what this seems to suggest to me is that, um, in order to kind of undermine the argument that you're making, all that people really have to believe is that it is possible to naturally evolve conscious processes. Right. That that's okay. Now notice this is this is key for what I want you to get out of this. What Alex is looking for here throughout this discussion, you know, um, for most of the discussion. He's not been addressing directly this issue of aboutness. Uh, now, there are two possibilities for that. One possibility is that he didn't understand that that was the point, you know, the principal point that, that he wants to be made, the point that Justin Brierley says it all boils down to. It could be that he didn't understand that. The other possibility is that he did understand it, but didn't know what to say in response to it. And uh, so throughout this discussion, he, whichever one of those is true, He's grappling with how do I get out of the teeth of this argument? How do what is the way out for naturalism? And here, what he comes to is, hey, um, isn't it the case that so long as people think that it's even possible that maybe you know gradually um, our reaction to things and uh, you know uh, different organisms' reactions and instincts could maybe result in something like this. Doesn't that mere possibility get, out of, get us out of the teeth of this argument? But remember, that's why Max began by saying, or early on said, it's not, I'm not, I don't present these slam dunk arguments. I'm not presenting to you that one that's like meant to be a, a necessary entailment. What I'm saying is, uh, which perspective is more plausible? And you can't get out of that with a mere possibility that could serve as a philosophical defeater. Let's hear Max say it in his own words seems to be the kind of crux of the point. And I wasn't talking about gradation that leads to conscious awareness, but the gradation of conscious awareness. And I think that if a listener can uh, agree that it's plausible that conscious awareness and ultimately feelings of pleasure and pain and this kind of stuff can evolve from naturalistic causes, 
then um, they can disagree with the, the argument that you're making, I think. Would that perhaps be <clears throat> the way to disagree with you here then? So I want to say no, because this is a probabilist probabilistic argument. This is about which hypothesis makes the data more likely or not. So, you know, my earlier example of the leaves on the lawn, it, it's possible, it's physically possible, uh, it's logically possible as well, for the leaves to be arranged to spell out the person's name. By the wind. Right, by, yeah. the, uh, by the wind, sorry, thanks, mm -hmm. Justin. Um, uh, but the question is which hypothesis predicts this data more strongly and yeah. merely to say it's possible in some sense, which I, I think I might be willing to grant, it, it is conceivable that evolution throws up this unnecessary offshoot, namely subjective experience. That doesn't show that the naturalistic hypothesis makes this data at all likely, and that's really the key question. Here. I, I mean, do you feel then that overall, as, as you <laughs> understand this argument, Max, obviously that that it is more it comports more with the theistic view then, um, and yeah, mm. th th presumably your view is if if naturalism. <clears throat> right. So there you have it. Basically, we have an episode of Unbelievable where you've got, I think, the best that I'm aware of in YouTube atheist apologists, <laughs> apologists for atheism, and uh, you know, a guy going to Oxford, he's probably going to be a big name going forward in the future. And either throughout most of the thing, he doesn't understand the, the argument being made, or he doesn't know what to do with it, and so starts uh, uh, you know, attacking or responding to these kind of secondary issues somewhat related to that issue. Um, but not, but not direct in, directly attacking it. Twice, Justin Brierley having to direct his attention back to it's this issue of intentionality. It's this issue of aboutness. Uh, Max having to say, no, 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 it's this issue of aboutness. That's really the central issue, and nothing you've said really deals with that. He goes off about planting his argument, which that's fine. That did get brought up. He goes off about uh, relationships between things and the fallacy of composition, and it's kind of like books because books can be about things, and all of these things get shot down, and in the end, what Alex is left with is, well, maybe, maybe it's possible that evolution explains this, um, because, and then, and then Max, of course, yeah, but, but evolution's not trying to do that. Evolution just, what you need with evolution is for something to just, to just, uh, survive. And so you could have biological robots basically. Okay. But maybe it's an accident of evolution and doesn't the very, very possibility of that get us out of this? No, not at all, because we're talking about what's most plausibly true, what's most likely to be the case, what's more probable. And your idea that the way out of this is to say that maybe somehow evolution did it, and maybe it was a happy accident of evolution just isn't good enough. You got to do better than that. And so I think we can take away several interesting things from this discussion. Um, one of those things, again, is uh, how arguments work. And I think typically, as we've seen here, atheists, not typically, but often atheists will try to look for any possible way out of a very strong argument for theism, any possible explanation, any, any narrow escape, and then speak about it as though that is the more plausible thing. Um, because of a presupposition of naturalism, when it's, it might not be the most plausible thing. Uh, don't, don't just look for, and this is something that everybody's got to do because this is where your bias can just run amok, is you don't want to just look for what is my technically my way out of this. You want to look at what is most likely to be true. And I think what we saw here is Alex kind of with a commitment to naturalism saying, what is my way out of the teeth of this thing? 
um, instead of what is more likely to be true, which is what Max was purporting. And I think that's, that's very, very important. Uh, we learned a little bit about um, how probabilistic arguments work as opposed to your more deductive slam dunk clinching arguments. Uh, and we learned uh, what the strength of probabilistic arguments are in, in that respect. And so uh, and we learned a little bit about uh, this problem of aboutness for naturalism. So I think this is pretty good. Now, obviously, um, this argument going through uh, just gets you just just gets to the point where, look, naturalism is not the best explanation. OK, so uh, let's let's put naturalism aside. Um, but then we would bring in further argumentation to get you to theism and then to Christianity. I have to say, folks, it blows my mind how often I hear skeptics on uh, my channel and see on other channels saying, yeah, but that Kalam argument or this argument or uh, some design argument or moral argument just gets you to some kind of a god or just gets you to naturalism's false. It doesn't get you to Christian theism, and you're trying to say that therefore Christianity is true. No, no, no. We always supply further argumentation. I would give a resurrection case after this to try and show that the God of Christianity is true. Or in this case, I might give uh, a theistic argument and then a resurrection case. We always follow it with further argumentation. So if in the comments for this video I see people saying <clears throat> something like, well, even if that's true, it doesn't get you to the Christian God. Uh, okay, it wasn't meant to. It was meant to be a piece in the puzzle, right? So um, uh, in this case, it's not a uh, puzzle of the poster for Star Wars Episode Four: The New Hope, but for the truth of Christianity. This is one piece in the puzzle. And so that's a very important thing. Um, I can always tell who watches the videos because often the things that they're raising were covered in the videos. Anyway, I hope this has been a blessing to you. And um, if you have questions or if you'd like to uh, go further and, and maybe uh, commit your life to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and begin serving Him, then you can contact me at braxton at trinityradio.org. If you would like to begin studying Christian apologetics and learn to do what Max is doing here and what others are doing, you can uh, talk to me uh, about classes or you can visit at Trinity Sim, that's trinitysem.edu, and uh, fill out the evaluation form there on the right-hand side of the screen for Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. We'd love to have you as a student. And um, uh, check out the rest of our channel. If you haven't subscribed, I encourage you to do that. And listen, there's more we want to do. This ministry can be bigger as we respond to atheism on the internet. Uh, but we need your support. And if you're willing to help us financially, then click in the top right-hand corner of the screen, or if you're listening by audio, visit uh, patreon.com slash trinityradio. We will thank you so much. We will appreciate it so, so much. Um, look at this channel two years ago and look at it now, and you can see how the work of patrons, um, the sacrifice of our patrons has been such a benefit to us. And, and uh, thank you to our patrons. So we don't thank you nearly enough. And um, if you become a patron, you get immediately like, I don't know, five or six free books, ebooks that you can just download and um, other original content there that's not available to everybody else. But thank you all so much, and I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.